0: Welcome to Philly People Now Deceased, a Philadelphia history podcast. Each time we meet, we talk about interesting Philadelphians who have passed away, which makes this a history podcast. We kind of get our start from a guy named Henry Simpson, who wrote a book called The Lives of Eminent Philadelphians Now Deceased, way back in 1859, which curiously left out anyone who wasn't white and male. So now we're redoing it with like... Everybody. All right. So we are here today. Um, welcome everyone. This is episode two of season two, and it's February 29th, 2020. Leap year.
1: Leap year. Yeah. And leap I'm Leap for Leap Year.
0: Leap for Leap Year. I'm here on the campus of Penn in Philadelphia with my good friend Nathaniel. Nathaniel and I have been friends for a long time. So Len Leonard is uh, very busy with children, so he was unable to do the podcast this month. So I reached out to my close cohort of friends, and um, Nathaniel and a few other folks offered up. So you'll be hearing some new voices uh, in the next couple of podcasts. So I'm just really happy to see you, Nathaniel. Yeah, it's me too. Been, like me forever, you you've yeah. been like in Paris. And- yeah, yeah, and,
1: and I'm super excited to do this. I've, I've been listening to it, and I love history. I love I love Philadelphia. I, I love you. So this is a, a perfect combination. Oh,
0: this is so great. I'm so happy to be here and um, to see you. And I know all of our friends are probably going to be like, oh, my God, it's not <laughs> yeah. I can't wait till they hear it. Um, OK, so the purpose, the reason what we do in this podcast, right, is we have I got my inspiration from a guy named um, Henry Simpson because I was reading his book. He wrote a book in 1856 called The Lives of Eminent Philadelphians Now Deceased which I thought was a fun title. But the deal with that was uh, in the book, it seemed like he only focused on white males. So I said to myself, okay, well, let's start looking at some other people. So everybody that I've looked at so far um, has not been in this book and should have been. So um, one of the people that I've talked about was Sarah Peter, who founded the Moore College of Art. Another person I talked about was James Fortin, who is just egregiously not been talked about and has been forgotten by history. I talked about Absalom Jones and Richard Allen. Like, hello. Like, these are the founders of AME and the leaders of the the black community, also not in Simpson's book. But the guy we're talking about today is in Simpson's book.
1: And who is that?
0: Samuel Morton.
1: And who is Samuel Morton?
0: Let's just call him Skull Guy.
1: Skull Guy, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm intrigued.
0: Yeah, this is his picture, and I will post all the pictures on the website. Samuel Morton was born in Philly, and his mother was a Quaker. Father was a uh, English Episcopalian, but his father died when he was six months old of... Uh, 1799 outbreak of the yellow fever
1: Which I know all about from Listening to this podcast
0: Yeah you know it's funny because I also do tours at Amp right so I was was doing the tour today And I thought to myself I really love Talking about yellow fever because it's like This hemorrhagic fever and like everybody Almost died in Philly it's like so like Disaster porn And then I was like No I'm not going to talk about it on my tour today Because (laughs) there's some other viruses We're worried about right now
1: and uh, and funny you mentioned yellow fever because I'm here at a clinical trial at UPenn, which is ironic since we're talking about a Penn-related thing. And a previous clinical trial I did at Penn several years ago was a yellow fever vaccine study. And I was at okay, I mean, I want to do this for the money, but I also want to do this for the vaccine because I know Philadelphia's history of yellow fever. And I said, you know what? In the future climate apocalypse that might be coming. This could be a good thing to have. So, you know, the two birds with one stone.
0: I love that you're so, like... Motivated because of your love for Philly, yeah. <laughs> You're like I'm, yeah. yeah. Philly destroyed yellow fever, yeah. so I'm going after yellow yeah. fever. I mean, you know, well, I'm, I'm protecting
1: myself in case yellow fever comes back,
0: dude. Look, yellow fever <laughs> could come back. I mean, this coronavirus is totally okay. All right, I'm sorry, going off on <laughs> tangent, a little bit of a yeah. <laughs> tangent, but okay. So let's get back to our buddy Samuel Morton. Okay, so obviously his mother was single with all these children. She eventually remarried a Quaker. Morton was the youngest of nine brothers and sisters. But only he and his sister survived to adulthood. Isn't wow! That sad, like That's, how that happens? Yeah, yeah, I mean... Those early families, it's like like very few people survive.
1: Yeah, thankfully we have antibiotics now. Yeah, so. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> if you get a cut, it's just not a yeah. big deal. Uh,
0: he went to a friend's school, and this becomes important, right? He went to school in Burlington. So Burlington is where Benjamin Lay famously... I know
1: Benjamin Lay, the... Little person Quaker that railed against slavery and and was expelled from his congregation for speaking out against slavery. Yeah, he's
0: and he did that at Burlington. Yes, I I didn't know that.
1: I didn't know that he did that at Burlington. He did
0: so. I went to visit because I'm like, oh my god, Burlington's (laughs) up the street from me, which is another great reason why you all should trust me and cross the Delaware into New Jersey. (laughs) Um, but. Benjamin Lay walked into um, his congregation at Burlington at the Friends meeting, dressed in a military outfit, (laughs) Uh, and and he had with him a Bible, and he had filled the Bible with um, an animal skin of pokeberry juice. (laughs) So when the meeting got started, he stood up, and he pulled out a sword, and he said something like, This is what's going to happen to all you people who have slaves. And he plunged the sword into the Bible and the pokeberry juice spread out all (laughs) over everybody.
1: We need more people like him today.
0: He's like quintessential Philly activist. I'm like, and he was a vegan (laughs) and he would not wear cotton and he would not eat sugar. He was like amazing. Anyway, after that, that was like 1670. Then. Burlington started getting really into, okay, we're going to free our slaves. And they really did. They, they were like the beginning of starting to free slaves in the United States. So by the early 1700, most of their slaves were free. I am on a tangent right now. But <laughs> but that was a good tangent. We, Benjamin
1: Lay is, is always good to talk like about. He's
0: like my love. Him and James Fortin are like so near dear to my heart. Uh, so anyway, but this guy, Samuel Morton, went to school in Burlington. So there was a, an important Quaker school in Burlington that he went to, which would have meant that he would have run into plenty of very free, well-to-do African Americans. Because by this time, we're talking late 1700s, early 1800s, Burlington had established a very like wealthy, free black community.
1: didn't know that oh yeah philadelphians we don't know anything about new jersey it's just across the river i know but it seems like another country (laughs) to us
0: (laughs) william still came from that area okay so 1817 age 19 he starts to apprentice with a guy named dr joseph Parrish. he went to penn here we are and graduated with a medical degree then he went on to europe Got a medical medical degree from Edinburgh University. Then he came back to Philly and practiced medicine. He became super active in the Academy of Natural Sciences. He really was trying to figure out what am I gonna do with my life. He start thought he would focus on pain relievers, and he did a little bit of work on that. It was kind of okay received, but not like oh my god I'm gonna get famous off of this. Um, Then he started to get into anatomy and then um, anthropology, all right? He became, based on that, one of the most, and this is from the New York Times in his obit. This is what the New York, oh, sorry, the New York Tribune said when he died. He was one of the most highly esteemed scientists in the 19th century. The New York Tribune said, Probably no scientific man in America enjoyed a higher reputation among scholars throughout the world than Dr. Morton. Cool.
1: I had never heard of him before. Uh, Why Skull Guy?
0: Because he decided that he was going to start proving, through science, that the races were unequal. Yes. Yes. And he did this through his study of skulls.
1: So, not so cool.
0: <laughs> That's why I call him Skull Guy. After he started working with a guy named Louis Agassiz, Louis Agassiz was the um, director of the Comparative Zoology Museum at Harvard. The two of them together really started working together and sort of created their own school. The school was based on this idea that there were five distinct races. So everything at that time was being like divided, right? So you were starting to get this flora and fauna. You're starting to get the, you know, little nuances. of What are the different species that exist in the world? And the school of, um, the American school distinguished itself by saying that there were five species of humans and those species. So those species were, um, it's funny i didn't even write it down because it's been so hard for me to study this but um uh, basically asian white black uh native american and i feel like there was one more i can't remember the five different variations but the name of this was polygyny 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 is this idea that there are distinct species of humans
1: and let me guess which one he thought was the best
0: but yeah, I take a good.
1: Probably, it seems like he didn't learn a whole lot from Benjamin Lay.
0: Well, no, I mean, this is what I don't understand: is how this guy could have grown up in Philadelphia, with at the time Philly having this like really firmly established, you know, well-to-do community of Black people, and still be so anti-Black that he would base his science on this idea that of trying to prove basically that there were firm distinctions among the different races and now pen will try and tell you or maybe maybe not pen anymore but um there was a book that came out that's the book i bought for you called the mismeasure of man and so this guy Stephen um steven jay gould who wrote this book Really came out super strong. This is like in the 80s. He came out super strong against Morton and um, really said that Morton was highly biased by anti-black ideas in his, in, his, in his work. And I think a lot of people took umbrage at that and said maybe he wasn't and how could he have proved that? But we're going to dig into that a little bit and just get an idea of what Agassi and and both Agassi and Morton were thinking because, remember, the two of them were hand in hand. Um, Here's a quote from Agassi. He saw his first black person in Philadelphia. And this quote is in Gould. And um, if you wouldn't mind reading the stuff that's in the box here, so maybe starting from about here to there, That is Agassiz's impression of black people when he first came to Philadelphia and saw his first black person.
1: It is impossible for me to reprocess the feeling that they are not of the same blood as us. In seeing their black faces with their thick lips and grimacing teeth, the wool on their head, their bent knees, their elongated hands, their large curved nails and especially the livid color of the palm of their hands. I could not take my eyes off their face in order to tell them to stay far away. And when they advanced that hideous hand towards my plate in order to serve me, I wished I were able to depart in order to eat a piece of bread elsewhere rather than dine with such service. What unhappiness for the white race! To have tied their existence so closely with that of Negroes in certain countries God preserve us from such a contact Agaziz to his mother December 1846 it's from the standard life and letters compiled by Agaziz's wife amidst these lines in presenting an expurgated version of this famous letter other historians have paraphrased them or passed them by I recovered this passage from the original manuscript in Harvard's Houghton Library and translated it verbatim for the first time so far as I know. Apologize for the mispronunciations.
0: So if, if Agassiz was the idea guy, Morton was the data guy. Okay. So Morton then set out to prove that the races could be ranked.
1: With the skulls.
0: With the skulls. So what he... His basic assumption was that brain size equaled intelligence.
1: Which we know is not true.
0: It's not true. I mean, you can look at Einstein's brain, and it was average size. You can look at an elephant, (laughs) and it's much bigger than ours. Although elephants are pretty smart. Elephants are smart. So are whales. Yes. And they have big brains. Yes. But.
1: I wouldn't base my science, my scientific conclusions on, on that data, though.
0: That's what he did, though. And um, so what he would do is um, he would take a skull and he would fill it with um, a small thing, either a mustard seed, and he tried that at first and he felt like it didn't work well. So then he switched to BB guns, like Mm -hmm. BBs. um, And he had people start to send him these skulls.
1: So he, he just collected skulls.
0: Yeah, and people knew about it and they would... Go out and like, you know, they would raid Native American burial grounds and send him skulls. They would send him skulls from um, people who had died in insane asylums. They would send him skulls from um, slaves and plantations. Sounds
1: like he was a real charming guy.
0: People say he was a nice guy. <laughs> I mean, you know.
1: They say that about a lot of people. <laughs> exactly,
0: and he was he was really well respected. So he like he had high positions in the National Academy of Science. He um, obviously graduated from Penn. Had a close connection with with Penn. Um, but this is what he thought, and um, so he would get this tabulation of sizes of skulls, and he published these two books. One called crania egypt sorry egyptiaka which is basically the skulls of people from egypt and what he was trying to prove was and, and he thought that these skulls were all white people from egypt right so
1: because there's a lot of white people in Egypt, you know.
0: Well, because <laughs> e- Egyptian civilization was all white, right? So, I mean, I, I'm putting my hands in the yeah, air so with l- quotes. I mean, we're, lots of quotes we're, and sarcasm. We're here, being though. very facetious <laughs> right now, um, but I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, black civilization, e- e- Egypt is a black civilization, and and so I think what you know, Napoleon and others had a hard time accepting that. And uh, you would see things like Napoleon shooting off the noses of sphinxes because they looked African, D- different things like that. But he, yeah.
1: Interesting, maybe this is a tangent, but interesting anecdote about Napoleon. One of uh, his best generals was actually a black man who served in the Egyptian campaign when Napoleon invaded Egypt. And all of the Egyptians thought that this guy was the leader of the French armies compared to this, you know, shriveled little white guy. And Napoleon was extremely jealous of this and never forgave him and basically cast him out of his favor. Actually, his, his name was Alexandre Dumas, who is the father of the author of The Three Musketeers.
0: That's f- a yeah. fantastic story. And a lot of people don't know that Alexandre Dumas is black. Yeah, what Count of Monte Cristo is like my favorite. I love that story.
1: He actually based a lot of the writings on the story of his father, who was this very gallant, dashing cavalry officer uh, that was black and was one of Napoleon's generals. And I said, basically, made Napoleon jealous.
0: Golly. Yeah, no, another tangent. Yeah. You know, Lots of tangents. <laughs> Joseph Bonaparte lived here in Florida. I knew
1: that. I know that. Yeah.
0: yeah. And there's a Bonaparte house uh, that, that has like a historical marker. I think it's on 10th Street. Um, and he and Stephen Girard and some of the other French folks that came over for the revolution had like a little French community going on <laughs> here. Getting back to our buddy yes. Morton. Okay, so um, does skull size determine intelligence? Uh, we don't really think so in this room, but Morton really did believe that. Um, and Morton's research uh, was, okay, so I'm going to read this. This comes from from, um, uh, Stephen J. Gold's book, Um, but basically it says that Morton's research into human hybridity was based on the writings of Joshua Knott, who was an Alabama surgeon and an anatomy professor who was trained in France. (laughs) Ha-ha. and made major contributions to the study of yellow fever. Knott was a slave owner and an ardent supporter of the Confederacy. In 1843, Knott published his first article on race in the American Journal of Medical Sciences with the dramatic title, The Mulatto, a Hybrid, Probable Extinction of the Two Races if the whites and blacks are allowed to intermarry. So this is a guy who Morton was um, really reading and trying to kind of connect with. Um, and there's still
1: people that believe this crap today.
0: Oh, yeah. That's why I bought the other book, um, Superior, which is uh, just came out this, this year. This book is about the return of race science by Angela Sa- Sani, S-A-I-N-I. And this is really about how people are trying to bring this kind of science back.
1: Oh, Let's not even call it science. Well, my, my wife is a scientist. You would you be up. offended to call this science. Let's call it what it is, which is pseudoscience.
0: Pseudoscience based on white supremacy bias. Absolutely. Yep. Um, I'll just finish this uh, passage. He used information from the U.S. census, this is not, to argue that different races of humans were, in fact, different species, but they could interbreed. Not also noted that mulattoes were more susceptible to disease and that mixed-race women were bad breeders and bad nurses, <laughs> says this mixed-race woman. <laughs> <laughs> After reading this and other of Knott's race supremacist articles, Morton wrote Knott a letter hailing the triumphant manner, quote-unquote, in which Knott presented his case for white supremacy and polygyny. A strong friendship and scholarly collaboration followed. Um so let's talk about the science a little bit because I really think it doesn't matter. Like right? his measurements like people are like really getting into the details of oh, you know, Samuel Gade Gold was like really hard on Morton and his science wasn't that bad.
1: I don't know, it sounds like a lot of crap to me.
0: Yeah, and okay, so and 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 you'll find that there's like these videos online where people are just trying like really for some reason people got upset when Gold came out with this book. Really? Yeah. They did. They felt like, and I'm not going to name any names. You can Google them if you want. But they felt like Gold was being unfair to Morton, that he had not really um, adequately looked at Morton's findings. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what Morton's yeah. findings are. Okay, so there's this, he wrote this other book. So there was the one about Egypt, then there was the one about America. And this one was really primarily, as Gold said, it was a treatise on the inferior quality of the Indian intellect, okay? There was 144 skulls. The mean of 80 cubic inches was how, so that was like the inside of the skull was measured to be 80, 80 cubic inches. The Caucasian norm that Morton had established was 87 inches so what gold said was well the first thing morton did was he used skulls all the way from mexico to north america all kinds of different people and um he had he didn't weight his samples so he lumped them all together so for example if you take someone um from say the mandingo tribe of africa those folks are seven feet tall and very big and then you take someone from a pygmy um they're going to be smaller and so you have to sort of establish scientific weights in your measurements for the fact that these different groups of people are like anatom; they have different anatomical 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 sizes (laughs) some are big some are large um and they're from distinctly different groups but morton lumped them all together and said they were all indian so that of course meant that he had you know um a sample size that might have represented a lot of smaller people instead of a lot of bigger people so for example he had 25 percent inca peruvians and those were smaller skulls, but then he only had three uh, Iroquois skulls.
1: But at the end of the day, it, it doesn't even matter because it's all just junk science right. that he was he was putting out there anyway. I mean, right. This is the same crap that the Nazis were saying a, a hundred years later.
0: I mean, the, the original premise is that brain size equals intelligence.
1: Exactly, which is totally bogus.
0: And another false premise is that all these people are the same group of people right so how are you going to take someone who lived in mexico and someone who lived in upstate new york and say that they're the same type or species of person like that just doesn't make any sense
1: yeah it's ludicrous
0: yeah and he just kept going with it that's the thing like he kept going with it and i want to show you his measurement table so that's from and this book is online the crania americana you can totally get that online and then and then there's this other issue is yeah, it's how are you going ridiculous. to tell that one skull just is arbitrary it's totally arbitrary. how are you going to tell that one skull is indian and another skull is white and another skull is african they got so much into the sizes and the like sh- shapes of these skulls that they actually thought they could tell by looking at a skull what where that person was from by ear size or like however things were, like how long the jaw was or, I mean, just, just craziness.
1: Yeah. I mean, in this stuff, it still infiltrates the academy. My father is a professor and when he started teaching in the seventies, he said that there was an anthropology professor that would walk around with his cart of skulls and would be teaching students this crap.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think <laughs> in the 70s in right? the 70s yeah you know i mean it's, I, it's it's hard to believe that people will actually do that i mean and i think the other part that really gets me is is this whole idea of that you can even begin to say that race is uh something that is classifiable like yeah. we're now starting to learn just from dna science that there is really no way in dna to tell what race somebody is exactly so race does not exist as a biological concept. Exactly.
1: As my, my wife is a geneticist. I mean, she, she would absolutely reiterate that.
0: That's so fascinating. There is a, actually a geneticist here at Penn who is doing a lot of work – oh, I think I have her name um, – about debunking the fact that there is, you know, that there's any way to tell that, that someone is uh, a certain race –
1: I mean I think it's nuts that people still even believe this at all that it that it even needs to be debunked it should have been debunked
0: 200 years ago. Dr. Sarah Tishkoff here at UPenn. Um she's really proving that race is, just doesn't exist. Yep. And her work is pretty awesome. But I also bought this for you. So this is most European Americans who identify as quote unquote white. This is the uh, a map that shows the percentage of African ancestry that they have. <laughs> so there's a lot of folks like pretend like what you'll see in yeah. this map when I post it is like basically there's a lot of folks like in South Carolina who would identify as quote unquote white who actually have a lot of African genes
1: and Louisiana. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at this map, it's literally the map of the Confederacy.
0: Yeah, that's pretty funny. That's
1: the map of the Confederacy right there. I mean, it shows, too, that a lot of these white slave owners were raping their slaves you know people might call it romance today like there's apparently some crappy book that's coming out now about thomas jefferson and it was some love affair let's call it what it is It, it was rape
0: she was 14 and he was like a like a 50 year old 60 year old man at that time and he owned her can't
1: have consent.
0: Sorry, we're, we're going Another off. Tangent. We're talking about <laughs> Sally Hemings. So Sally yeah. Hemings was a slave of um, Thomas Jefferson. She had a lot of his children, uh, and it sounds like somebody's going to try and justify that or um, romanticize the fact that... Listen, Jefferson was very mechanical about how much he was going to make from his slaves. The, I, I've seen these calculations myself. Um, he basically figured out that if he kept having slave babies he would not have to import it it would be cheaper for him to have these slaves grow up on his plantation and that was how he was going to make his profit margins by actually instead of having to buy labor he would just birth labor
1: i I don't understand why we still emulate these people today jefferson washington yeah
0: and it's funny because Prior to that calculation, like I think he started, he did that like in the 1780s, maybe a little later. He was actually against slavery, so he wanted to not put in some um, s- some things that the South wanted to put into the Declaration of Independence around uh, black slaves. But he, but, but then a couple of years later, when he realized how much profit there was to mm-hmm. be made. So I mean to be able to say that that was that that economic calculation wasn't going through his head as well in the relationship with Sally Hemings it, I mean come on let's be let's be realistic absolutely Um all right so here's the part that really bog, bugs me the most about this guy well all of it bugs me but the idea of polygyny began to really influence people. So you want to think Morton's doing this work in the 1830s and the 1840s. This is also the Jacksonian period. This is also the period when under Jackson mobs and mob violence became an important political method of the elites sort of saying what they wanted. They would allow mobs to do things. So here in Philadelphia, we have, you know, let's say we had these Burlington, people freeing their slaves, people getting apprenticed. You had uh, a very solid black community, very well-to-do, lots of very rich people. In fact, in, I think it was 1830, the top 12 richest people, six of them were black. Really? Yes.
1: I did not know that.
0: Yes. So th- there was, a, a, in between, it started from Lombard and it went to, like, um, Spruce, and then from about f- fourth back up to about seventh, that whole area was um, a, a, a very well-to-do black area.
1: That's where the A.M.E. churches. That's where Mother Bethel yeah. is,
0: right? So anchored around Mother M- Mother Bethel, and then uh, Mother Bethel A.M.E. founded by uh, Richard Allen, and then there were there were like two Masonic halls, there was like a bunch of churches, there were newspaper offices, there were people with substantial brick homes, there was a very growing, vibrant, rich black community. And it's interesting that we had this blackface thing happen at the Mummers because what, what this community would do, as if you watch any Jane Austen film, you are going to see the angst around marrying your daughter into the right family. <laughs> so what you do is you get your daughter all dressed up and everybody goes to the balls and you try and hook your daughter up. So the same thing was happening in the black community here. You had women coming out of you know three generations of wealth and everybody wanted to marry them off appropriately to the right type of person so you would have a ball and you'd get all dressed up and they were called fancy balls and you started to see the rise of anti-black mobs even in sort of the political cartoons where there was, this, there was actually a guy. Did I bring this picture? No, I didn't. But um, you started to see this kind of in the papers and in the mobs, starting to get really upset with the fact that black people were doing so well.
1: Yeah, there was even a riot. And I forget the years. It was the 1830s, 1840s, the Lombard Street Riots, which was a, a race riot.
0: It, it, I wouldn't call it a race riot. I would call it a... What? A, a, a ri- lynch
1: mob. A lynch mob. Yeah, that's
0: what I don't think that black yeah. folk were riding against no, white folk. No, exactly.
1: Folks, yeah, that's, but I
0: do think that yeah. black people actually started to like arm up and come together. But it, it really generated from, you know, these white mobs going up against rich black folks. And you see today, the mummers call their their groups the fancies, mm-hmm. because what they would do is they would dress up in drop blackface and emulate. Rich black people going to fancy balls.
1: Really, I did not know. I mean, I know about the mummers and blackface and the fact that people are even still having this conversation today in 2020 blows my mind. But I, I didn't know the origin of that. That's I, I'm I'm pretty sure that's, that's the origin, and yeah.
0: it, it it really started. And so you have. So at the same time, you have Samuel Morton coming in, this American school. You have this stuff starting to be written, and then you're, that is feeding just a general growth of racism. So I'm going to read this. This came out of the Gold Book. After Morton, polygyny began to overtake monogeny, which is basically we all come from Adam and Eve, an educated consensus. Morton's collections of skulls grew to about 900 at the time of his death, making it then the largest such collection in the world, Morton's views were elaborated after his death by Agassiz, Knott, and Glidden, who published Morton's posthumous papers along with their own and other writings in the massive book called Types of Mankind in 1854. This book was perhaps the most comprehensive statement of polygynous thought before Darwin. Although polygyny had already largely faded in educated opinion by the 1850s, the notion that cranial form could be clearly associated with intelligence and race stuck. So, you know, things started to happen. I mean, th- there were so many attacks, like race science started to grow. And I mean, even in 1954, and I bought this for you. This is um, from a book called The Wallum Open. And it is a hold on. <laughs> okay, it is a... Um, taking race science to the next level. So basically, the Wallam Open is a Lenape um, a guy c- said he found some Lenape um uh, uh, ideology and some visuals iconography that would describe sort of the Lenape view of the universe. He published it in a book called The Wallam Open It later uh, later on we found that it was uh, proven that he these may have been um, false pictures that he found or that he may have actually made them up in the back of the book that I have which was published in 1954, there are measurements, that are based on skulls. So this is 1954. (laughs) The purpose of this measurement table is to prove that Delaware natives had migrated to another part of uh, the United States and that the skulls that they found were in fact Delaware. So in other words, they believed in their skull measurements so much that they put this in a book to say, that this skull that I just found was a Delaware Indian. <laughs> 1954.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a load of crap.
0: So what I'd like to do today is I would like to honor the people whose remains are being used as skulls right now. We need to remember that these were people who had no decision. You are right now in a medical study. You have had probably to sign a lot of documents. Yes. To say, yes, it's okay.
1: Fully consented, exactly.
0: No one of these skulls has had that honor.
1: No, no. There's no consent involved, especially if they're ripping open people's graves.
0: You mentioned this guy rolling around with a cart of skulls. Yeah,
1: in the 1970s.
0: How can we think that's okay?
1: Exactly. I mean, that somebody would be employed at a major university pushing out that crap it's 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 people's remains it's somebody's
0: parent it's somebody's grandparent these are people they deserve to be interred and uh, the, the reason i found out about this um whole samuel morton thing was that penn students here actually formulated a petition to say that the skulls that they have here at, at Penn. They still
1: have the, They still have Morton skulls here. At they Penn.
0: still have Morton skulls here. Yes, they do. Um, and let me see. The guy's name was Abdul Ali. Sorry. Abdul. Oh, man. I don't have his name in here. I Abdul Ali Muhammad. Abdul Ali Muhammad. They said that um, they wanted the skulls to be properly reinterred because many of them had come from sort of slave so so the Native um, skulls are covered under an act called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. It's called NAGPRA. And those skulls are actually, if they can determine where the skull came from, they're getting returned under NAGPRA. So if you go to like Penn Museum, Mm -hmm. Penn Museum has a whole collection of skulls. So if you go to Penn Museum site, you'll see that they have a nice NAGPRA page. They have a good NAGPRA person. That person is returning those skulls to the Native American grave sites. But there is no such act for African-American slave skulls. Um, I just want to read this just to give Penn some, some credit for having returning this stuff. Uh, since the passage of Niagara, Penn Museum has mailed over 3,000 letters to federally recognized tribes, informing them of the holdings and extending invitations to consult about those holdings as of 2017. 48 formal repatriation claims seeking the return of collections have been received and 30 have been completed, resulting in the transfer of 252 sets of human remains. So Penn Museum is doing what it has to do. Um, but, um, yeah, but Ali, uh, Abdul Ali Muhammad has a currentchange.org pe- uh, petition, which I will post, to have the African remains reinterred appropriately or, or, um, or, 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 or just basically um, returned back to Cuba, if they can figure that out. What I wanted to do was just read through some of the people whose skulls are being used. So in the catalog of human crania that Morton himself collected and that is available at the National Academy of Sciences, printed at the National Academy of Sciences in 1857, they give the detail on where all these skulls came from and who the people were.
1: Yeah, I mean, as you said, it's so easy to forget that these were actually people these are people's sons mothers fathers brothers
0: and what i'd like to do just to honor them is is pick a couple so starting from here and in the next few pages you'll read <coughs> and i would like to just read through some of who these people are and we can take churns just reading the names of the people um and just to honor who they are and to kind of it, it, remember that they deserve right in their own use of their remains for science so you can pick anyone you'd like
1: number one five six two Eskimo skull obtained by dr. E.K. Kane from an ancient grave or cairn at the Eskimo village of Ita north of Cape Alexander presented by Dr. J.K. Kane, August 12, 1856.
0: Number 434, a Dutchman of noble family born in Utrecht and for several years a captain in the army of Batavia in the island of Java, Java, where he died under 31 years of age. He was handsome, non-deficient in talent, and of an amiable disposition, but devoted to conviviality, and disposition which finally destroyed him. Dr. Dormick of Batavia from whom I obtained this cranium gave me the above facts from personal knowledge.
1: Number 17, Mulatto Lunatic died of Aetat. I don't even know what that is.
0: Number 63, Negro Lunatic, died in the Philadelphia Hospital in 1832, aged 65 years.
1: Number 632, Cherokee woman, MTOT 20, FA-77, IC-90, from a cave at Springtown north of the River Hawassi and near an ancient battleground. The form of the cranium and the developments are strikingly characteristic of the mountain Cherokee of the present day.
0: Number 1336, Chinese, hanged at Singapore for piracy, 1845. The face in this instance conforms in every respect to the Mongolian type. Remember, these are Morton's words. But the cranium is one of the most beautiful I have ever seen of any race or nation procured in Calcutta by my friend Dr. Charles Hufnagel, and by him presented to me 1880-1847. Number 1333.
1: Three, three. Afghan boy, about 16 years of age, killed at Jugdaluk during the memorable massacre of the 44th English Regiment. Number
0: 418. Manta Indian, question mark. A tribe of the Lenape, or Delaware Nation, FA-79, IC-75, found and excavating near the bank of the Delaware River in New Jersey, about four miles above Burlington. The body, with several others, was buried in a sitting position. Dr. Edward Swain.
1: Number 1546, Swede from Finland. Man named Carl Blee from Borga Parish in the province of Nyland. For vagrancy, he was imprisoned May 17, 1831, and in default of bail, sentenced to a half year's hard labor. He died 64 years.
0: Number 205, Delaware Indian, fragmentary. Delaware Indian, numbers 205 and 206, were dug up from a street in Philadelphia. Presented by Dr. George P. Oliver, November, 1852.
1: 80, skull of an Englishman named Samuel Guillem, a convict in Australia whose history is thus briefly given by my friend, Dr. C. Huffnagel, now of Calcutta. Transported to Van Diemen's land in 1820 for housebreaking, was orderly on shipboard but subsequently robbed his master for which he was sent two years to Maria Island where he was flogged for combination and also received 100 lashes for stealing articles from the wreck of the Apollo. Returning to Van Diemen's land, he was fined twice for drunkenness and was executed there on the 16th of March, 1837 for the murder of Mary Mills, a young woman whom he had previously violated.
0: These are people. And what really gets me is at the end of the book, he just has a list of African, 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 African with some numbers. And there's like 20 of them and, or 30 maybe. And you just know that they came from Cuba, from a a, a plantation or some plantation in the South. And you think these folks um, traveled uh, probably in the Middle Passage worked to the bone on somebody else's uh plantation never got anything for it and then even in death they are being used by science and i think that these skulls we need to understand that these people need to be re and need to have a sense of um their own agency even in death
1: yeah absolutely yeah, I mean, it's I I didn't know that these they still had these skulls here at Penn. It's that's
0: disgusting. Yeah, I mean, I, there's they've got to figure out a better way of dealing with them. I think Nagpra is great in that they are being returned, um, but there needs to be either similar legislation or Penn should just do the it, right thing. Do the right thing, right? and there should be some type of ceremony where they're maybe even reinterred here in Philadelphia, given some, you know, I think the problem is that people still want to use them for research.
1: I mean, even just a few years ago, down, speaking of the Lombard Street area, they, w- they were wanted to build a parking lot or something uh, on a African-American graveyard.
0: That's right, that's right. There was, and also, it, well, let's think about graveyards for a second. So. In um, on Spruce, uh, across from Penn Hospital, between I think it's eighth or ninth and tenth, you have the Mikveh Israel Cemetery, right, which is the Jewish cemetery. It's consecrated ground. It never moved, but Eden Cemetery in in um, out in North Philly, that had to move from Mother um, – sorry, St. Thomas Episcopal Church had a burial ground that was also consecrated down. That's where James Fortin was originally buried. And for some reason, all of those people had to get reinterred out to Eden Cemetery. And now there's some, like, 1980s ugly building sitting on top of it. And I'm like, how did that happen? Like, somebody really advocated for Mikvah Israel to really be able to keep this – ground and not have to reinter all their people but we didn't get the same sense for saint thomas episcopal all those folks had to move and sure great eden's an awesome cemetery and it's great to be able to go and visit all these important people but it would it it feels very weird that they got reinterred right that they were in a final resting place and got moved and for what
1: yeah they didn't consent to that
0: no, I don't think they did yeah. either. Uh,
1: there's a great Philadelphia lawyer activist, Michael Cord, yeah, who uh, we know yes. from representing a lot of activists uh, pro bono, uh, who engage in direct action and civil disobedience. But he's also very well known for the Avenging the Ancestors Coalition. That's right. And uh, he's always been very, th- very much at the forefront of, of talking about a lot of these these same things we're talking about today.
0: Yeah, they do great stuff. Um, What did he do on Independence Mall? I think he was able to say. With um, the Washington House. With the Washington Mm -hmm. slaves, right? So Washington would circulate his slaves just before they hit the six-month mark where they would have been freed in Philadelphia. He would send them back down south. Um, But a lot of them escaped. Ona Judge never was found again.
1: A new book just came out about her. Yeah,
0: yeah and i just imagine her just living it up somewhere (laughs) i mean um and his chef hercules used to walk down you know philadelphia streets looking awesome mighty fine um but yeah i mean maybe we should talk to michael cord for the next one and see if he'd be willing to talk about what he's doing there but yeah i wonder if he even knows about these skulls it'd be good to reach out to him and maybe and say listen dude Let's get some legislation going. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Let's try and do something. But in the meantime, um, those of you who are listening, you can go to the change.org site, search for PEN. Uh, Abdul Ali Muhammad uh, has created that. And again, I'll post it to Twitter and I'll post it to the Facebook page so that you can go and please sign. Right? I mean, the more people who are aware of this, the better. Um, and the there's ability to take action on it right now. Does it surprise you at all about this guy?
1: Unfortunately, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the first two minutes you, you, you had me hooked. You said, okay, this guy seems kind of cool. He was a scientist. He was a Quaker. He was friends with Benjamin Lay. And and then you just dropped the crap. Dropped
0: the bomb on you. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but um, all right. I think that's all I have for you today. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye
1: Bye-bye.